Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 68, Death to the Romanovs. Last episode, Nicholas II, Tsar of all Russia, was forced to abdicate, leaving Russia without a Romanov ruling the country for the first time in over 300 years. Chaos gripped the country, especially in the capital of Petrograd. After Nicholas abdicated, the royal family was trying to go to Great Britain to stay there in exile. Seemed like a good plan, because he was related to the monarch there, King George V. And to top it off, his wife Alexandra was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria. It made perfect sense to everyone, uh, except for the British, who had, of course, openly criticized the Tsar in the past, and many of King George's ministers recommended against granting asylum, especially his secretary, Lord Stamfordham, who was worried that allowing Nicholas to stay in England might stir up problems on the home front, which they did not need given the state of the war effort against Germany and Austria. Nicholas and his family were kept as virtual prisoners by the provisional government in their home at Tsarskoye Selo. It was a pleasant enough place to be kept hostage, but the problem that the family had was boredom. They were so used to a social life and having free reign to do as they pleased when the Tsar was in power. They were kept under close watch and guarded, not so much to stop them from escaping, but to stop them from being attacked by members of the left who wanted all Romanovs dead. This hatred of the Romanov family is best described by a 16-page pamphlet put out by the Moscow Soviet of Workers' Deputies. Here are some excerpts I found in the book The Romanovs by Lindsay Hughes. Any who might contemplate restoring the Romanovs should ask themselves who they were and what care they took of working people. A popular anti-dynastic history begins with the election of Michael by the will of the boyars, then Alexis, in general supported by the noble landowning class, to whom he was quiet and humble, overindulging them. Peter I was clever, decisive, and energetic, but extraordinarily severe and cruel, and cared nothing about working people, building St. Petersburg on bones. The author cast aspersions upon the morals of Catherine I, who was drunk the whole time, went with officers, and died of a bad disease which she probably caught from Peter. Soldiers with an interest in dynastic legitimacy should take note that the male line died with Peter II, that the German Biron ruled on Anna's behalf, and that Elizabeth was illegitimate, as well as being the last of the Romanov bloodline which had to be restored by her German relative, Peter III. In a last resort, Catherine II took orthodoxy and Russian names as a means of restoring the extinguished line of the Romanovs through the Gotop-Romanov line. Peter III hated Russia and Russians. Catherine II was clever but debauched, spoiling the nobles and tormenting the peasants. Paul's origins were obscure, Indeed, it turns out that our royal house, according to our Russian rules, has no right only to the name of Romanov, but also the name of Gotorp. Even so, Paul secured the family fortune, with the appanages department showering his relatives with unheard-of wealth, 
all sucked from the Russian people. And the ongoing litany of wickedness. Alexander I was a hypocrite. Nicholas I stupid and oppressed Russia for 30 years. Alexander II did nothing to relieve the lot of the people. Alexander III was a suspicious, gloomy drunkard. And Nicholas II stupid, cruel, and duplicitous, spilling rivers of blood. The 1913 celebrations had been fake and sham in an effort to bolster the dynasty's stolen name and put some Russian gloss on their German origins. There was nothing wrong with being foreign, but they had no right to pass themselves off as Russians when there was not a drop of Russian blood in their veins. Many of the monarchists who would have helped support the Tsar and try to restore him to the throne saw the writing on the wall, and those who could hightailed it out of the country. My family was one of those who left in 1918. My grandmother and grandfather decided that it would be prudent to head out of the country while they still could. They made their way to Serbia, where many of their friends headed. They were never to see their beloved country again. The provisional government was making plans to exile the Tsar, his family, and all the Romanovs. All the Soviets, and particular the Bolsheviks, made plans to round up all of them and execute them as common criminals. Negotiations fell through with all countries that might take the royal family, which put increasing pressure on the provisional government to put further pressure on the family. Their perceived lenient treatment of the Romanovs was seen as a weakness which the Bolsheviks took advantage of. On August 1, 1917, the royal family was taken from Tsarskoye Selo and moved to Tobolsk, considered the capital of Siberia, to stay at the former home of the governor-general. But this was not to last, as the provisional government collapsed and the Bolsheviks, led by one Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, took control. Wait! What? When did this all happen, and, and why haven't you talked about it? Patience, my loyal listeners, patience. This podcast is dedicated strictly to the end of the Romanovs. I will go back to Nicholas's abdication and what happened to the government next episode. I promise. It is October 1917, and the Bolsheviks were in power, with a number of regional Soviets wanting to take possession of the Tsarist family. Their fate was now sealed. The White Army, which was an insurgent force hoping to take down the Red Communists, was surging toward Tobolsk. So the order was given to move the royal family to Ekaterinburg and the Urals. They were put into a home known as the Apatyev House. The guards were of the Ural Bolsheviks, who were notorious for their radicalism and hatred of the Tsar and his family. The irony here is that 304 years earlier, Mikhail Romanov started the line of Romanov rulers at the Yipatsev Monastery in Kostroma, and now the end was near at the Yipatsev House in Ekaterinburg. On July 17, 1918, with the White Army approaching Ekaterinburg, plans were put together to put an end to the family and the Tsar. There was a debate for many years on whether Lenin knew of the plan. 
we now know he not only knew, but approved of the murder of all of the members of the Romanov family. At midnight, Yakov Yurovsky went up the stairs of the Apatiev house to awaken the family. Dr. Eugene Botkin, the Tsar's personal physician, was already awake. Yurovsky told Botkin, quote, Because of unrest in the town, it has become necessary to move the family downstairs. It would be dangerous to be in the upper rooms if there was shooting in the streets. The family, as well as Botkin, had heard rumors of an approaching army and had likely heard artillery and gunfire in the distance. So the reasoning given by Yurovsky seemed genuine and believable. The physician woke the family up and told them to get dressed. Forty minutes later, the family, led by Nicholas, carrying his boy Alexis, followed closely by Tsarina Alexander, Princesses Olga, Tatiana, Marie, Anastasia, Dr. Botkin, Trupp, the Tsar's valet, Dimadova, Alexander's maid, and Karatinov, the cook. They were ushered into a small 11 by 13 foot room and told to stand by the wall. Yurovsky told them that they needed to take a picture of the family to dispel rumors in Moscow that they had escaped. Alexandra was said to have asked oh, why there were no chairs. Two chairs were brought into the room. Alexandra sat in one and Alexis in the other. Yurovsky now called in 11 men into the room, who were certainly not photographers, as each carried a revolver. Yurovsky stood in front of Nicholas and took out a small piece of paper and read the following, quote, in view of the fact that your relatives are continuing their attack on Soviet Russia, the Ural Executive Committee has decided to execute you. Nicholas is said to have turned to his family and said, What? What? Yurovsky then pulled a pistol out of his pocket and shot Nicholas point blank. Then the carnage began in earnest. Brutally, every single member of the family and their entourage was murdered in a hail of bullets. No one survived. The rumors of Princess Anastasia surviving were more Disney than the truth. When debating on how I was going to present the murder of the Romanovs, I thought long and hard on how detailed I would be with the actual crime. My decision is to leave things not spoken, as the eyewitness accounts are somewhat horrific, as is the burial. What I will do is recommend a book that went into great detail that also tells the story of how the bodies of the family were eventually found. The book is The Romanoffs, The Final Chapter, by Robert Massey. Yes, the same author of the monumental work on Peter the Great. Rumors quickly spread throughout Russia that Nicholas II, last Tsar of Russia, was dead. But what of the family? Since Alexandra was German-born and the Soviets were negotiating with Germany to end their participation in World War I, Lenin ordered that no one speak of the family's fate. For years, the official government position was that only Nicholas was executed and that the family was in hiding under Bolshevik protection. By now, any Romanov uncle, aunt, or cousin that remained in Russia were executed as well. 
Some were thrown into mine shafts and allowed to die there. Tens of thousands of monarchists were also murdered. Lenin felt that the country needed to be purged of all things. Romanov. Days after their murder, the White Army entered into Ekaterinburg, but was unable to find the bodies or discover the whereabouts of them. Lenin was told of the murder. Trotsky found out when visiting Moscow where Lenin's deputy, Yakov Sverdlov, told him that the family had been shot. When Trotsky asked, and who made the decision, Sverdlov told him, quote, We decided it here. Ilyich believed that we shouldn't leave the Whites a live banner to rally around, especially under the present difficult circumstances. Next time, the provisional government of Livov and Kerensky tried desperately to rule Russia after the Tsar's abdication, but met with a brutal enemy, the Bolsheviks, led by a charismatic radical known to the world as Lenin. And now for a reading from Russian history. There was a post on a recent, uh, one of my recent podcasts, and it was a very interesting question about the serfs and how long they lived and uh, things like that. And I want to thank uh, the listener who asked the question, uh, posted it on Facebook at a Russian Rulers uh, History podcast uh fan club page got a lot of interesting responses and basically that if you were to 45 percent of the people who were born died within the first five years Uh, but if you were to make it to five you would make it to about 29 30 years old a little higher for males lower from females if you made it to 20 you would likely live to 50 extremely hard life and one of the things people you know had put some quotes down there about life as a serf, and one thing I had put down was there were some great works by uh, Turgenev, the Russian author, and one of them is a story called Mumu, and I'm going to just read a little bit the beginning of it, and it is available online if you have a Nook or uh, any other reading device. You can find these uh, stories for free. Uh, Barnes & Noble has it, Amazon. These are uh, you know off copyright already, but this is a great piece of work. In one of the unfrequented streets of Moscow stood a gray house adorned with white pillars, an entresol, and a balcony which was somewhat caved in by the effect of time. An aged widow lady, surrounded by a large retinue of servants and hangers-on, lived in that house. Her sons were in service at St. Petersburg. Her daughters were married out of the house. She seldom made or accepted calls. In retirement, she passed the last years of her narrow and tiresome life, whose bleak, unenjoyable day had passed, and whose eve was dark and gloomy. The most remarkable individual of that lady's household was a menial servant, Gerasim by name. He was six feet and five inches high, his constitutional was proportionally developed, and he was a deaf mute from his birth. He was the property of the lady as all her other servants were, her serf. She took him out of her village, where he had lived in a lonesome cot, isolated from his mates, where he had been considered as one of the best serfs on sockage work. Endowed with Herculean strength, he could perform the labor of four ordinary men. His work melted away, as it were, 
under his hands. It was pleasant to behold him on performing his task. When he was guiding the plow in the field, pressing on it with his large hands, he appeared to tear open the yielding breast of the earth by his own efforts, without the aid of the small horse that walked in front. When his harvest time he yielded the seeth, it seemed as a forest of young birch trees would as easily give way to his mighty sweep as did the yellow grain stalks. When he was thrashing the harvest, the heavy chain played easily and steadily under his muscular arms, and the colt staff went up and down in regular strokes, as if impelled by its own good will. His constant silence imparted a solemn earnestness to his work. Garasim was an excellent serf indeed, were it not for his unfortunate defect, every girl in the village would be but all too willing to have lent an ear to his wooing. But the lady took him to Moscow. There he was donned in boots and in a coat in the summer, and in a sheepskin cloak in winter time. A broom and a shovel were put into his hands, and he was constituted the menial servant of the house. That's a little story about the life of a serf. They were owned. They were told to do whatever they could and would for their owners. And it was a harsh life, a very, very harsh one and very depressing for also, you know, Turgenev in his book, you, you have to read Momo and some of the others, really tells the story of the, the hardships that the serfs went through. So I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, I'm going to be taking a couple weeks off because I've got to get ready for the Soviet years, uh, 74 years of control by the Bolsheviks and the communists. And it's been, it's a pretty interesting one and one that I haven't had enough time to study. I didn't take uh, that in uh, college as I did the earlier history of Russia. So just boning up on it. I've been doing that for a while. And I hope you can bear with me for that little two-week break. Uh, but don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group. It is really, I have to say, a very lively place. Uh, lots of ideas coming up and questions. Uh, and of course, you can ask a question there, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. But now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.